This episode is brought to you in part by Dr. Tony Evans, author of Kingdom Kindness. Learn how to become a countercultural force by reflecting God's kindness. Find this and other uplifting resources on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold. Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Mikel Del Rosario, Cultural Engagement Manager here at the Hendricks Center. And our topic on The Table podcast today is resurrection and the vindication of Jesus. And I have two guests in studio today. First guest is Dr. Daryl Bach, Executive Director of Cultural Engagement and Senior Research Professor of New Testament here at DTS. Welcome to the show, Daryl. Glad to be with you. And our second guest is coming to us from Skype today. It's Gary Habermas. Gary is the Distinguished Research Professor of Apologetics and Philosophy, and he's the Philosophy Chair at Liberty University. All the way in Virginia, welcome. Thank you, Mikhail. Always glad to see you guys for one of these broadcasts. They're great. Yeah, you're a veteran of foreign wars. (laughs) (laughs) So this is not the first time this has happened before, but I do need to take a step back and just appreciate how awesome it actually is to have both of you on the show today, because you guys are both Jesus guys, and uh, we've we've had uh, wonderful conversations in the past about uh, the evidence for the resurrection, and today we're going to take a look at something that's near and dear to both of your hearts, which is the vindication of Jesus, and how the claims of Jesus actually fill the resurrection with theological meaning. And so we're going to take a look at some key things that Jesus did um, towards the last week of his life and what we celebrate during Easter time, and how that connects, how his words and deeds connect to the resurrection and its significance. So we'll just jump right in. We want to start with the triumphal entry, or as Daryl likes to call it, the a-triumphal entry, right? That's right. Um, Help us just set the stage, and I'll just throw it open to whoever wants to go first here. Just set the stage for what's going on at this point in Jerusalem where people are coming into the city. Well, they're coming in to celebrate a feast, and I I liken it to being at a football stadium and people parking their cars and getting ready to come in, and they all come into the same locations, the same time. They're coming from all over the country. Uh, They're coming by foot, or if not by foot than, uh, you know, riding on an animal, or at least a few people might be riding on an animal. So it's a it's a gathering throng, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what the reason for the A triumphal as opposed to the triumphal is, is that normally when a dignitary shows up uh, to a city, what happens is the city gathers its prominent people and they go out and meet this prominent person coming to the city and escort this person into the city. Uh, It's much like the way in the modern world a VIP might be greeted by the nation's leaders' hosts if they're, you know, coming from another country, that kind of thing, and then walk on a red carpet, et cetera, with a lot of pomp and circumstance. And so, for example, if Pilate was coming into Jerusalem, he would be greeted by the Jewish leaders and they would escort him into the town as a way of showing their respect for his uh, position. And so the reason then the entry of Jesus called an a-triumphal entry is because he presents himself as a king, at least that's how the disciples are presenting him. Granted, it's a humble king, but still he's presenting himself as a king, and there's no reception and welcome coming from the other side. Mm. Uh, In fact, there's protest. Mm -hmm. So um, that kind of sets the scene for the nature of Jesus' ministry. He's been presenting himself uh, as this hope 
for Israel. He's been supported by miracles that I like to call PowerPoints, points about his power. Mm -hmm. And in the midst of all that evidence, uh, people, a significant number of people are not responding as opposed Mm -hmm. to welcoming what he's doing. And the entry into Jerusalem is a little cameo snapshot of that reality. Mm. So he's he's starting to become much more public now. That's right. One of the things that is happening with this ride on the donkey into into town, which uh, is an allusion to Zechariah's passage about about uh, arrival on a on a donkey of a humble king. One of the things that's happening is is that Jesus has been very circumspect about claiming who he is in public. He's mm-hmm. he's talked privately about this with his disciples and even gaining the confession at Caesarea Philippi. He tells them, "Don't tell anybody," because the public has a certain expectation of what Messiah is going to be, and then there's the kind of Messiah Jesus is going to be, and they don't match. So so he doesn't want to create a sense of false expectation. But when he comes to Jerusalem, he's, he's going to force matters. He's going mm-hmm. to publicly reveal who he is, declare by his actions what he is doing, because the first thing he does after the triumphal entry is cleanse the temple, which is claiming sacred space by the king. And in the midst of doing that, uh, in the midst of making this public declaration, really force the hand of those uh, at the temple and those who are leading in the city to make a decision pro or con about what they think about what he's doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Gary, how do you see the authority of Jesus being um, shown in this in this scene here? Well, I think it's quite uh, amazing. I think as Daryl just said, it kind of sets the table and it raises all kinds of questions. If you're going to be careful about who you say you are and then you start revealing it maybe in bits and pieces or, you know, the mark and messianic secret and all these things but then you're, it's he's reaching the time where it's gonna it's gonna come out and you know it's not long after this what just a matter of days when he's going to be before the priests and to me i mean daryl's written maybe the best book on the subject but to me um that's the most amazing proclamation he's been quiet for all this time and he's going to come out and make some uh, statements that are get him going to get him blamed with blasphemy and fit to die. So it's it certainly ushers in the the beginning of the end. And there's another detail that's important versus the way this is popularly conceived. At least the triumphal entry, the 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 picture that you get in popular expectation about this event is that the whole city welcomed him and then you know later on in the week the same city is rejecting him and right. you know how does that happen mm-hmm. and the shock of that turnover but i actually think a careful reading of the text suggests that's not quite what happened what happened was the disciples were proclaiming who he was they were bringing a lot of attention in the general environment of the event that they are attending is festive Mm-hmm. Um, and so, again, I'll go back to the football analogy. It's like a football crowd going to a game before the game. They're all excited and you know about the competition and what's going to happen and how that's going to play out. And so everyone's reacting. So some people are praising Jesus because of who he is and their connection to him, but other people are just joining in because the time itself is festive. Right. And, and so I think that takes the edge off the so-called switch in Jerusalem of people who are so for Jesus at the beginning of the week end up being against him at the end. I actually don't think that's what what happened. I think what you had is people were presenting Jesus. They were they were vocal and certainly present and effective. And then a, a second thing that was going on was a lot of the crowd was just coming into into town to celebrate to celebrate the feast. And so 
Um, so that's that's important. There's one other important part of the detail that sometimes gets mentioned by skeptics. Skeptics say, well, if Jesus really went out and presented himself as a king right there at the beginning, you know, why didn't the Ro- Roman soldiers simply arrest him at the time? Mm-hmm. And the explanation that I just went through is actually the explanation for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have 120 or so disciples who've gathered with Jesus, who've come in from Galilee with him. That's the number that was in the upper room later, who are presenting Jesus. But you've got this crowd thronging to the city in a festive mood, um, coming to celebrate the feast, and so everybody's in a in a how can I say uproarious mood, mm-hmm. if I can say it that way. And so, as long as nothing violent is happening, um, there's nothing that signals um, in a significant way that there's any danger or any violence or any disruption going on that would draw the attention of soldiers, particularly over a distance. If you've ever been to Jerusalem and you've you've looked out over the Western Wall towards the Mount of Olives, that's a long distance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, cars are specks and people are half specks. Um, so you wouldn't necessarily be seeing as someone's coming in on the Mount of Olives um, all that celebration and, and, and the noise that would be generated would be the noise of a huge, large crowd, not necessarily the specific noise of what's happening around someone riding a donkey coming into the city. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One of the objections that I've heard is that, um, Gary, maybe you can chime in on this as well, is uh, people were singing all kinds of songs at that point, and maybe they weren't singing specifically about Jesus and this blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. How would you respond to that? Well, I I think one thing's for sure. There were a lot of different concepts, and you have to put them all together. And some are there, as Daryl suggested, some along for the ride. Some are there for the excitement. Um, Sort of like tailgating, only they were walking and they were doing their tailgating together in a crowd. And all the uh, palm branches and everything else, I think a lot of them... To me, I think they're hoping this is going to be it. This is going to be it when the Romans are overthrown, Passover, best time of the year. Don't we expect it to all hang out right now? And, and you know, he walk, goes on down to the temple and some other things are going on now. So it just, I, I don't know if they knew what to expect. Everybody had their own expectations. You see that in the Gospels when he responds and, and people respond differently to what he says. Mm-hmm. So I just think, to me, that it's a wild time where... They're hoping for something that didn't happen. And then those who were faithful to him, he's on a cross a few days later. So, you know, you got the ups and downs on both sides. Mm-hmm. Well, there's certainly, if they're using the palm branches, they're laying down their cloaks for him. They're certainly uh, directing these things toward him. Even the, the sign on the cross later on um, that we see, the King of the Jews, that kind of speaks to the historicity of this, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, everything rotates around the cross. Um, You know, uh, why is Jesus put to death? Uh, Everything that's associated with that, we're probably coming to a discussion. We talk about the different motives as to what put Jesus on the cross, depending on whether you were a Roman or or a Jewish Mm -hmm. leader. Uh, But the the challenge of the laying down of the palm leaves and Jesus entering in is it is this announcement and presentation of the arrival of a, of a of a king. Some people might have seen it just as the arrival of some kind of a dignitary, something like that. They may not have been able to specify. In fact, John tells us they didn't realize the connection to Zechariah until after Jesus was glorified, which mm. is a way of referring to his death. So a lot of people didn't put together the symbolism until you know. Upon further review, since yeah. we're using football illustrations, and uh, um, and, and so. 
uh, you know, everything is kind of presenting itself, and and people are having to reflect. Now, what's interesting is the Jewish leaders get it. They they walk out to Jesus' disciples and they say, you know, tell them to stop. And Jesus responds by saying, well, if these disciples weren't doing what they were doing, the rocks would cry out. And this is one of those cases where in Scripture, when creation speaks, we're supposed to listen. And when there's the possibility of creation speaking, we're supposed to listen. So all the rhetoric of what is surrounding this event coming from the people who are participating in it is sending a signal of this is something to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. But I do think that a lot of people who were uh, around the fringes of the event really had no clue what was going on, and the leadership was rejecting what was taking place, even though they understood the symbolism. Mm -hmm. So if Jesus is presenting himself as a dignitary or or a king, uh, if you get it, then it's time to follow him. Uh, unless at least not, pay attention. Yeah, uh, yeah. If he's not who he claims to be, then we need to stop him at this point. Exactly right. So it raises the tension. Of course, when Jesus goes in, the next thing he does is go into the temple and cleanse it. And now that really does ratchet up the pressure. Mm-hmm. The leaders are responsible for the temple. It's a rebuke of the way the temple is operating. And he's really, at that point, forcing, forcing their hand in terms of making a decision about him. Mm-hmm. It's a claim of sacred space. In fact, it's the most sacred space on earth as far as a Jewish person is concerned, because it represents the presence of God. And so there is, there's no wriggle room for the leaders uh, once he goes in and cleanses the temple. They either have to be supportive of what he's done or stop it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let's take a look now, fast forward to the Jewish examination. And Gary, could you help us just set the stage for what is going on at this point and, and how, how palpable the tension would be in, in this meeting? Yeah, you're trying. You're talking about before the Sanhedrin, right? Yes. Yeah, you know what? We're we're doing this football analogy, and we're doing tailgating, and we're doing things like that. I think here's my take on how I see that event. Um, it, it, the high priest is there, and he's got these witnesses coming in, and he wants them to present their charges because you know, in Jewish data and in the Old Testament, you have to have witnesses, and you have to have more than one witness, and and they're saying things. I get the feeling that the uh, you know high priest is not terribly happy with the arguments they're bringing, like uh, tear this tear this temple down in three days, I'll raise it up. Okay, that's pretty bad. That that as Daryl said, that's one of the worst things you can do is tread on the temple. But it's not quite getting to the fact of blasphemy. And so he hears these witnesses, and to me, he's saying, "All right, good enough. Look, you guys have had your say." I'm going to step in, and it's going to be mano a mano, Jesus and me, all right? Just tell me straight. And I'm, I wonder if in the back of his mind he's thinking, my guys have been out there a lot, and they see you a lot, and they keep losing arguments with you, but but you and I are going to have it out right here. It's going to be like a little mini debate. And he says, are you the Christ to Mark 14? Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And as Daryl and other commentators, uh, uh, Craig Evans and and uh, Tom Wright and others have have mentioned, it, there's even Jewish elements here. He doesn't say, "Are you the Christ, the Son of God?" He mm-hmm. says, "Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One?" Which is one of the indications the passage is authentic. And and so he asks Jesus, and Jesus responds. For me, Jesus responds with four things. He says, of course, in the Greek. Uh, ego and me, and there's discussions whether that's the ego and me of 
of Exodus three and so on. I think I think normally not with most of the commentators, but I'm sure Daryl is uh, well up on that. Um, so he says, "Ego me," and then he says, "Henceforth you will see the Son of Man coming." Now, in the Old Testament, Son of Man can mean more than one thing. It, it's it could be a mere man, Book of Psalms. Uh, it could be a prophet, almost a hundred times in the Book of Ezekiel. And it can be the enigmatic figure of Daniel 7, who's often portrayed as a pre-existent figure. It's not God, because the Ancient of Days is there. And he's sent to, ha- he's sent to earth to set up God's kingdom. And I might just mention, Daryl, I don't know where you are in this, but at the end of the Septuagint there, at the end of that passage, the word Latruo is used. And, and some translations say they worshipped him. Most of them say they served him, the Son of Man. But I can talk about the Aramaic there. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, the Aramaic. Okay, well, uh, Michael Kona did a study of Latruo, and almost every time the word is used, it's, it's yeah, it's serving, but it's in a worship context. Mm-hmm. It's in a sim- uh, temple context every time but one, if I remember correctly. So that's kind of a context, and he says, ego me, and then henceforth you said the Son of Man. Now, the high priest could have gone... Son of man, son of man, who's the son of man? We're all sons of men. Come on, stay on subject. I ask you through the crisis. No, he didn't say, this is a small thing. We're all sons of men. He starts getting flustered. And Jesus set up coming on the clouds. And most of all, I think most commentators think where he really crossed the line was not even the ego of me. It's the co-region on God's throne, sitting on the right hand of God. And he crosses the line. So you get a formal declaration of blasphemy and the tearing of the garments and of course he puts the words in everybody else's mouth the high priest and he says hey i think this guy is guilty of blasphemy what do you all think and i can hear this what if we change images from a football game to the ancient west you know the black and white westerns where they're getting ready to hang somebody and these guys that move from set to set to set and they're paid whatever to sit there and go yeah yeah hang them high yeah 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 and you know you're getting kind of everybody hanging jumping out there together going crucify him, you know, kill him. And uh, to me, that's the most significant single passage in the Gospels where Jesus comes out and the text or Jesus, either one, makes it very clear who he is. Yeah, exactly. And and there's a whole, let me, I'll walk <laughs> back through it because it's interesting. Yeah. Um, in Mark, you get initially the presentation of the temple charge, you know, uh, tear down this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And of course, uh, what John tells us is he was talking about his body, he wasn't talking about the physical temple at all. And um, and it says the witnesses couldn't agree with one another. Now, I, I, sometimes it's helpful to look at an event not from the perspective that you're used to reading it from, but from the perspective of, of the opponents. And in this particular case, the last thing that the Jewish leadership wants to do is take a case to Pilate that they can't prove. Because if they take a case to Pilate that he cannot prove and Pilate releases Jesus saying, we looked at this and there was nothing here, that is a public relations disaster for the Jewish leadership. Um, That's the last thing that they need. And this meeting before the Sanhedrin, which is often called a trial, is actually a misnomer. It's an examination. It is like the grand jury phase of deciding whether you're going to present a charge rather than actually having a formal trial in, in the technical sense. This is why some of the Mishnaic rules, I don't think, apply to the situation that we're in. Having said that, when 
the question gets asked, and and I think Gary's right to point out the four things, but um, but three of them are very tightly connected to one another. Um, the ego in me is debated as to whether we're alluding back to Exodus or not. Uh, you can sign me up as a skeptic on that one. Hmm. I think that it, it, in stuck in the sentence, it's just not clear. Yep. If it's if it's an illusion, it's an extremely subtle one. Hmm. And, but the next three are crucial mm-hmm. and belong together. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power is the way. Jesus responds with equal respect for the name of God that the high priest showed when he asked the question, are you the Son of the Blessed One? It's a circumlocution to prevent saying the name God. Mm-hmm. You will be – are you the Son of the Blessed One rather than the Son of God? And the, I will be seated at the right hand of power rather than at the right hand of God. Okay, so again, Jesus is responding in kind, showing equal respect. Um, coming on the clouds. Now, the reason those three are important linked together is because who gets to sit with God in heaven if you are a strong monotheist? And share his presence and share his glory? That's just a good question. And then the second part of it is, and you've got a Son of Man figure riding the clouds. Um, Gary said earlier that the Son of Man and Daniel is not God because we have the Ancient of Days, but it's confusing because only God rides the clouds. And so I've got a human being riding the cloud, something that in the Old Testament only God does. And so he's doing God's stuff as he's presented to God and receiving authority from God about the things of judgment that are things that God executes. Mm -hmm. And so you've got this huge mix. So what you're seeing is the crashing of what I call the Christological glass ceiling. He's coming through from below to the above, and it's demonstrating who he is. And the theologians in the room get it. Another important thing that's important about the Gospels is that even though the leadership doesn't believe what Jesus is saying, they understand what he's claiming. Mm -hmm. They get what he's saying. And so the reason it's blasphemy is because if Jesus is not who he's – who he is not actually who he's claiming to be, it is blasphemy. Yeah. And so they don't believe that he is what he's claiming, so that naturally goes into the blasphemy bucket. But Jesus is claiming exaltation that God is going to be responsible for. What he's really saying to them when they ask who he is, he's actually making a prediction. He isn't just answering yes in effect, although he doesn't say yes or no. He's saying, this is, who, this is what I'm going to be doing, which is the way he always answers the question of who he is. He always asks the question of who he is by what he's doing. John the Baptist asked a similar question mm-hmm. earlier. You go tell John what you see in here, and you've got the same thing going on here. And in the midst of doing that, um, he presents – he basically says, you can do with me whatever you want, but one day God is going to vindicate me. In fact, henceforth God is going to vindicate me, and you're going to see me at the side of God, riding the clouds, executing judgment, and you may think I'm on trial here, but one day I, you're going to be on trial and I'm going to be the judge. Mm-hmm. And they did not like that answer, um, uh, not only for the Christology that it presented, but for the eschatology that it also represented. It's a prediction of God's going to vindicate him no matter what they do. And so they rip their clothes and say that it's blasphemy because they don't believe what he's claiming. And the and the battle is you set this up nicely, Gary. You know, kind of a, a boxing match. On the one side we have the side that represents blasphemy, and on the other side we have the side that represents divine exaltation and vindication. And those two things are clashing at this event. And now the question becomes, who's right? Who's got this mm-hmm. right? Well, before we get there, we've got to get to the cross. 
And so they go on to Pilate and they take a religious charge, blasphemy, they translate it into a political charge. Because if they had walked into Pilate's office and said, hey, we've got a, a, a figure here we want you to judge and he's guilty of blasphemy against our religion, Pilate would go, so? Mm-hmm. I don't care about that. Yeah. Okay. So they translate it into a political charge. The political charge is he's claiming to be a king. Now, Pilate has several responsibilities. He's um, supposed to keep the peace. He's supposed to look after um, Caesar's interests. He is supposed to collect the taxes, and he appoints the high priest once a year. Those are the four things that he does. And and when Jesus claims to be a king, um, as far as Pilate's concerned, only Rome appoints the kings. Mm-hmm. So if you claim to be a king that Rome doesn't appoint, Rome believes very much in law and order. You follow our law or we'll put you in order. And so that's exactly what's happening here. He's challenging them. And in the midst of that, then we get this transfer from a religious charge to a political charge, which Pilate has to deal with. Because this is right in the this is right in the hub of why he's there. You got to keep the peace. You got to look after Caesar's interests. Uh, Caesar's interests are not in having kings floating around who Caesar didn't appoint. And so Jesus ends up going to the cross for sedition, and that sets up this potential for vindication. Who's right? The people who say Jesus is dying because he's blasphemed and committed sedition, or because Jesus is who he claims to be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. So now we're transitioning into uh, the, the the crucifixion, Pilate's uh, meeting with Jesus. So we have him coming in the triumphal entry as a dignitary, later certainly as a king now. He's claiming to have the kind of authority that God has where he rides the clouds. He, you know, the son of man in, in First Enoch is this pre-existent figure who has the right to judge. And there's a, a great, maybe you can just comment on this briefly, in First Enoch at, uh, at the end where um, the people who see the Son of Man are the people who are judged. That's an amazing passage. Yeah, I mean, everything about Enoch is interesting. Uh, we think – I did edited a book with James Charlesworth of Princeton who's, who knows these Jewish materials backwards and forwards. We think that First Enoch was written in the period in the switch from B.C. to A.D. We even think it might have been written in Galilee, uh, which is where Jesus ministered. So the – People would know when Jesus says Son of Man, they would know what that is, and particularly once you connect it, and he only did this twice, at the Olivet Discourse and then in this scene with the Jewish leadership. When you connect it to riding the clouds, you've identified the passage that connects to the Son of Man. It's mm-hmm. Daniel 7. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so this is the glorious Son of Man, and he always went around saying the Son of Man, not a Son of Man, which means yeah. he's talking about himself. He's not talking about anybody else. And so... 
Um, so when he says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds, he's talking about who he is, not a separate figure. And in the midst of doing that, he's making all those claims. But it's in cultural script. Mm-hmm. And uh, by cultural script, I mean, you know, it's almost coded. But um, the Jewish leadership understands the code. They just don't agree with it. Yeah, yeah. Psalm 110.1 as well, yeah. seated at the right hand. This Now it's taking on this idea of the, the ultimate essence eschatological king that they're waiting for. That's right. You've got the king pa- kingship passage out of uh, Psalm 1101, one of the most popular passages of the Old Testament cited in the New. And then you've got this Daniel 7 text, which is someone being uh, ushered into God's presence, but getting there in a means that only God uh, travels, mm-hmm. and even though Son of Man means human being. So you've got this human divine thing going on in the way Jesus is presenting this, and so he's leading people to ponder what it is that he's saying, and the Jewish leadership gets the claim. Mm-hmm. They, they don't miss the signal. Mm-hmm. Um, they just want to turn off the radio signal. Yeah, yeah. Um, Gary, talk to us a little bit about the evidence for the crucifixion. This is something that is virtually uncontested in in scholarship right now. Is that correct? That's correct. In fact, if you take just three figures that uh, people point to as being three major skeptics today, uh, John Dominic Crossan, the late Marcus Borg, and of course Bart Ehrman, Crossan and Borg have almost identical comments, and what they both say is, well, Crossan says that the crucifixion of Jesus, he he says he takes it absolutely for granted that Jesus died on the cross, and they infer or say things like, this is the most uh, incredibly established event in the ancient world. You take uh, Bart Ehrman, who, of all the criteria, and I know the criteria are under fire today, but you still have, I mean, almost nobody's willing to walk away from him. Mm-hmm. And, and you have Mart, Bart Ehrman saying that his, his favorite is multiple attestation. And he takes great pain to say that there are at least 15 independent sources that attest to the crucifixion of Jesus. So on historical grounds, he's got a chapter on, uh, in his book, Did Jesus Exist? He's got a chapter on two of the best uh, evidences that Jesus lived and was somebody special, and one of them is what we know about the cross. So he considers death by crucifixion to be, I mean, uh, you know, untouchable as far as skeptical. In fact, Dom Crossan even sounds like the way evangelicals talk once in a while, because he starts guessing as to why Jesus died on the cross. Mm-hmm. So he talks about the possibility of hanging down low and pulling down on the muscles or intercostal pectoral deltoid muscles, and he could have asphyxiated on the cross in low position. And I mean, that's Dom Crossan. So, yeah, I think you're right. Almost nobody questions the crucifixion of Jesus anymore. It's it's a given. Of course, you have to go on to bigger things after that. Yeah, yeah. Is the sign above Jesus' head, the King of the Jews, is that part of the uh, consensus as well? Or what's the evidence on that? Well, in my reading, that goes back and forth. Uh, sometimes you have a few scholars who say it's one of the signs of historicity, um, along with the voice of the baptism, the sign over the cross. These are major moments where Jesus' identification comes out in some way or another. And yes, it's often pointed to historicity. Uh, I don't. In the reading I do from from these skeptics, many, many, many of them, um, there's not a lot of comments about the sign of the cross, but there are. 
a passing comment said it's a, it's a good look at the history of the situation. Mm-hmm. And there's the authority as well that's mentioned there. Yeah, uh, Martin Hengel thinks the titulus, which is what you call the sign on the cross, is, um, is one of the most important features of the scene because it tells you why Jesus was crucified. He was crucified for sedition. That's precisely why Rome would crucify somebody. Mm-hmm. So it fits the cultural backdrop. Sometimes people quibble about the different wordings that are presented in the Gospels for what is on the titulus, but you need to remember that sometimes we're dealing with with summary as opposed to detail. And the uh, and all of them agree that the declaration was is that Jesus was crucified for claiming to be a king. Mm-hmm. So um, so all that is as it work, and then and then the reason it's important is because you can work both backwards and forwards from the event of the crucifixion to understand why Jesus is on the cross. I tell my students that if you look at technical historical Jesus studies written by people who may or may not be believers, the whole scope of that. Mm-hmm. If you want to understand if they've really done their work, if they will acknowledge a public declaration that Jesus claimed to be a Messiah, claimed to be the king, um, then they're probably doing a good level of work. If they argue that Jesus is something less than that in the midst of his life, they've missed what's going on historically. And uh, because uh, when Jesus hangs on the cross, it's for this claim. Now, the next question, what kind of Messiah is he? How great a Messiah is he? Mm -hmm. Is a whole other layer to that question. But at the least, um, recognizing that Jesus was crucified for being the Messiah, for claiming to be the King of the Jews, for claiming to be the Anointed One, that's what Mm -hmm. Christ means. uh, that is a very, very central part of the narrative, and the titulus is the sign, pun intended, of mm. that meaning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let's move on to the reports of the empty tomb now and the resurrection. Gary, you've said before that we're not talking about the resurrection of John Doe, we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so because of that, we have this context. Um, in which uh, to to interpret what happened, um, give us a little bit on the uh, the evidence for the empty tomb as you present it. The empty tomb. Well, <clears throat> I think of all the facts there toward the end, and I do this deal where using a small number of what I call minimal facts, we still have enough of a basis to say that Jesus is raised from the dead. Now, I don't count them empty tomb in that group only because not as many scholars allow it. But the data for the empty tomb is as great as any of the other facts there. Um, I have a list of over uh, 20 historical arguments for the empty tomb. And the crazy thing about the list is they're all derived critically from the text. These are what critical scholars say, not somebody who's quoting hook, line, and sinker, like to paraphrase Bart Ehrman. Ehrman says, I'm quoting all these verses, not because they're in the Bible. I don't quote them because they're in the Bible. I quote them because they're arguable from the data and according to criteria we use. So using those criteria, there's only over uh, 20 considerations. The first few, I think, are more powerful than the rest of them. And of course, two scholars, well, the big one that critical scholars mention more than any other one is the women going to the tomb. And the fact that these are four biographies around the Mediterranean. They're not looking over each other's shoulder. They can read sources, but they're not like sitting at a table. What do you have for that? What do you have for that? They're all telling the story their own way. And to me, what's incredible is they could have, with, with the with the passion for de- 
to for mentioning males instead of females to get your case in court. I mean, it's it's wrong to say women couldn't testify in a court of law. It's plain they could. But the more important the issue is and whether there are men around really was important. Carolyn Osiak's article on uh, women at the tomb, she says that was the attitude toward women around the entire Mediterranean, Greek, Roman, Jewish, Egyptian. That's just how they viewed it. And those men who wrote the Gospels could have said, Luke and John mention it, they could have said, well, on Easter Sunday, a couple of our guys went to the tomb and checked this out, and it could have been a totally different story. It could have been the men going late and seen it. But all four of them say, hey, men are no men. It starts with the women. And of course, the women are the, for all intent and purposes, just about the only one at the cross. They're just about the only one at the burial, except for two fairly obscure, uh, you, you know, Joseph and Nicodemus. Um, but the women are there. The women are the only ones going to the tomb. The and we're told in John they were the disciples were hiding for fear of the Jews. Um, the women are the first ones to see Jesus. So at every spot, the women are the key. And then the second point I'd make, the two greatest to me, is that the resurrection was first proclaimed in Jerusalem, not Rome, not Antioch, not Alexandria. It was it was mm -hmm. proclaimed in in Jerusalem. And what's so bad about that if you're a critic is a walk a sabbath day's journey could have seen if that tomb was empty and and sometimes critics will say things like well hey come on even according to your book of acts uh 50 days later what's that body going to look like in the tomb when the first sermon's done on pentecost and and that's the wrong look because the question isn't was there a body in the tomb that we couldn't recognize? The question was, was there a body in the tomb? And that the teaching of the Gospels is there was no body in the tomb. If you go, hey, guys, I've got a body here. I can't make out who it is. Now, you've got questions about where the nails were placed. You could tell what happened to the body. But, but And by the way, uh, pathologists have told some of us who've done this research that in a, in a spring environment, it would 50 days would not have been too long to not recognize somebody. But to me, it's irrelevant. If there was anybody in the tomb, the proclamation is wrong. And Jerusalem is the place where the proclamation was made. So you don't make a proclamation that is readily uh, falsifiable unless it's true. So I think those two things, women witnesses and the location of Jerusalem, uh, this Jerusalem factor for the proclamation are two. And we've got a number of others, uh, whether Paul implied it in the in the pre-Pauline Creed, 1 Corinthians 15, Acts 13, uh, Acts Sermon Summary about the burial. We've got other data, but I think those are the two biggest evidences. Yeah, let me mm -hmm. let me elaborate on the women thing, because I think that's important. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, Gary's right that you – uh, that women could testify. Now, it, the fact is their testimony was limited to certain kinds of cases where a woman's presence would be important, But so it was restricted, but it existed. But imagine this, because remember the alternative is the early church made it up. So you're in the PR meeting after the Messiah's been crucified, and the group is gathered, and they're saying, all right, how are we going to keep hope alive here? They killed our Messiah. And someone raises their hand and says, I got a brilliant plan. Uh, let's take a difficult idea, resurrection from the dead, which almost no one believes. Only the Pharisees believe in it. The Sadducees don't believe in it. The Greeks don't believe in it. So we've got to sell this difficult idea. And we're going to go out, and our major witnesses are going to be women. And they're going to sell it to the world as the starting point. And the whole group goes, yeah, that's the plan. That's the way we're going to do it. And they go out and – there is no way 
in first century heaven that that plan is going to work. Um, and that, that that's going to be a plan that someone's going to make up. The mm-hmm. only reason you have something so culturally outlandish, if I can say it that way, mm-hmm. is because it happened. Mm-hmm. That's the only way you get that in the story. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's why we're saying that's that is that's one of the key reasons for for believing that this took place and that it wasn't a created story, which is the only alternative. And the point that Gary is making about Jerusalem is very important because everything happened in Jerusalem. Yeah. Every, you know, as he said, you could take a seven-pace walk and go see, you know, there's the tomb that he was supposedly buried. Now, Bart Ehrman comes around and says, well, he wasn't buried in a tomb. He was left like everyone else who was crucified to, you know, to go in effect into a pauper's grave, and he was just dropped in with everybody else who had been crucified. But the text doesn't let you go there. Um, so so that's, an exp- that's an explanation looking for a rationale. Um, and and looking for a basis in the text that doesn't exist. So the only reason the women are in the story is because the women were in the story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, Gary mentioned the book of Acts, and uh, I, I think immediately of Acts chapter 2, where we have the first Jewish apologetic for Jesus as Lord and Messiah connected to the resurrection and his ascension. Talk to us about the the vindication that, that is seen in the resurrection. Okay, so we've already set this up in saying what Jesus did in front of the Sanhedrin was to predict mm-hmm. uh, what it was that was going to happen, that was going to show who he was, and in effect be the answer to the question that the high priest asked. Mm-hmm. You know, are you the son of the blessed one? <laughs> in effect, Jesus was saying one day God is going to show you. And the empty tomb and the resurrection is that show. That was showtime. And so um, so you get this raise. In fact, Peter says it outright. He says, therefore, let all Israel know God has made this one who you crucified, both Lord and Christ, on the order of the Greek is, God has made Lord and Christ this one who you crucified. And the evidence is um, the empty tomb. He cites Psalm 110. One, the same text that Jesus applied to the Sanhedrin in the midst of that, in the midst of that speech, and so uh, the way I like to joke about this, uh, that what Jesus was predicting in front of the Sanhedrin was, um, you know, you can ask me this question, but one day you can contact me, and you can contact me at www.righthandofgod.com. I will still be alive and be able to answer your question, and you will, you will, and you will see evidence of my presence and power, and that's exactly what Peter is arguing. The Spirit has come down, which is the promise of the new era. It has come from the Father. The Son has received it. Actually, the Christ has received it. He's passed on what you see and hear. And what you are seeing in the presence of the Spirit is the Messiah bringing the Spirit of God to the people of God as he promised would happen when the kingdom comes. That's the language of New Covenant of Jeremiah 31. And I'm going to put the law in your heart. Ezekiel says, I'm going to put my spirit within you. So this is the promise of the new era that is arriving. And that shows that Jesus the Christ, because John the Baptist said in Luke 3, 16. Luke 3.16 is as important for soteriology as John 3.16 mm. is, um, that the way you'll know the Messiah has come is he's going to baptize with spirit and fire. He's going to bring the spirit of God. Yeah. So this act is the vindication of God. We preach the resurrection on Easter oftentimes as he's alive, so one day we'll be alive. You know, we, pre- we present it as our hope. 
But behind the our hope part of this message mm-hmm. is Jesus is who he claimed to be. And the resurrection is the vindication of who Jesus is and his claims. And without a raised Jesus at the right hand of God, we don't get the alive part. Yeah. So it's all tied together very much as uh, – and I think we don't talk about that part of the Easter message enough on Easter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Gary, at the end of a book that you did with uh, Mike Lycona on uh, the resurrection, you have a little section on how to – take this material and and share it with somebody at you know a, a hockey game or your kids uh, soccer game or whatever how would you take the uh, evidence for the resurrection say in like a couple minutes and then transition that into something more personal where you're challenging people with who Jesus claimed to be well to me when you go back we started with the triumphal entry mm-hmm. but if you go back where Jesus is weaving this message throughout some very, very important texts in the Gospels. You think about uh, the so-called Q passage in Matthew eleven twenty-seven, and the Luke parable, parallel, which is often called the, the uh, joining uh, thunderbolt. And only Jesus knows the Father. It works the other way around, too. Or Mark thirteen thirty-two, where a very embarrassing text, no, no man knows the time of, of my coming, not even me, mm-hmm. which... It's so embarrassing, as uh, some scholars have said, if you want to say he was the son of the father, which is what he is in that verse, they should just say, I'm the son of the father. Don't go saying something embarrassing like, I don't know when I'm coming. So you have these passages where he uses phrases like son of God, son of man. Then, of course, what we did talk about today, the pro- the, the fourfold proclamation of, of uh, blasphemy, coming in the clouds, sitting on the right hand, whatever you do with they go me, at le- it's at least an affirmation. I agree with Daryl about not going back to Exodus 3, but it's at least a, uh, an affirmative to the priest's mm-hmm. question. And then, of course, the proclamation of blasphemy. You put all these things together, and other passages too, Mark 2, forgiving sin, um, and he's called, he's He's almost killed there. I mean, they blame him with blasphemy. You have this picture that's coming together in blocks. Oh, wow, he claimed this over here. Wow, he said this over here. Wow, well, put that in your back pocket and see what, what, you know. So Jesus makes these claims that is really somebody special. And I tell my students that, to me, the two most radical, i.e. blasphemous, if not true, things Jesus said were, number one, claims to be deity, and number two, Every religious founder said, I have the way to God. I'm going to give you the words of truth. Jesus says that. But Jesus says something far more radical. He makes what philosophers would call an ontological comment. He says, there is a way to God. I'm going to show you. But then he says, I'm going to show you it's me. I am in my being the path to eternal life. What you do with, I'm paraphrasing Boltman, but I mean, you go back to even that early date and radicality there, and Boltman basically says what you do with Jesus determines where you spend eternity, and uh, he's the key to the kingdom. So those two things are pretty radical. Then he then he's, he dies as a false prophet, as a blasphemer, according to some, and you don't have long to wait. Sunday morning, he's raised from the dead. Now, if Jesus isn't the Son of God, He's not doing anything on Sunday morning. He's not going anywhere. Dead men don't do much. And when he's enlivened, when he's raised from the dead, I I tell people, even in casual conversations on a plane, if I'm asked, you know, what I do or something, in a casual conversation, if God gets involved, which a resurrection would require because dead men don't do much, 
what else could it be for is except to put your blessing on this person? And that is the way it's treated in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 22, 23, 24, Peter says Jesus is shown to be these things mm -hmm. by his resurrection from the dead. Acts chapter 17 Paul says he's given proof of all these things, as the you know the word is sometimes translated there, by raising him from the dead. And over and over again, the resurrection is a crowning achievement. Now, I, I know that's kind of a lay level sort of a, what do you think God was doing here? But I would challenge somebody to tell me a better explanation for the resurrection, unless you're going to say he's a false prophet. And that doesn't work because he's raised. So what exactly is going on here? He must have been vindicated. Mm -hmm. And I think I think resurrection, which is taught throughout the New Testament to be vindication, it's exactly clear on another level, just because nothing else makes sense. God doesn't raise heretics from the dead. If it's Deuteronomy 18, don't claim to be a prophet and make a wrong prediction. Deuteronomy 13, don't claim to be a prophet and do a miracle and then teach us to go astray. All the way through the Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, a prophet speaks for God. The Son of God would really speak for God. Deuteronomy 18, there's going to be a one who's going to come who's going to speak all the words of God. Um, so Jesus does what he's supposed to do, and then God responds. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was showtime, as Daryl said, and and God comes through. He raises them from the dead, and the rest is history. But what do we do with that connection made in Acts 2, 22 to 24, if it's not vindication? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, the rest is history. I like how you said that. Uh, how does that history now connect to challenging somebody with the gospel? Daryl, how would you make that move in a conversation? Well, what I would do is just make the point that uh, what God was doing was showing his vote in this dispute. Mm -hmm. I mean, you really have two options. Um, it's blasphemy or it's exaltation. Um, it's like the choice early on in the Gospels about Jesus' miracles. Is it from above or is it from below? Mm -hmm. I like to say C.S. Lewis is too complicated <clears throat> leaving three choices, liar, lunatic, or lord. That's too complicated. Okay? It's from above or it's from below. And if God has acted to show who Jesus is through the empty tomb and through the resurrection, and if that is vindication, that's God's vote in the dispute, and there's only one vote that counts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's God's vote. Yeah, yeah. Well, if Jesus is who he claimed to be, then eternal life is in fact possible, and it's available to us. So thank you guys so much for joining us today. Thank you, Daryl. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Gary. Enjoyed it very much. Always do, Mikel. And we thank you so much for joining us on the table today as well. If you have a topic that you would like us to consider for a future episode, please email us here at the table, and our email address is thetable at dts.edu. Thanks again for joining us. I'm Mikel Del Rosario, and we hope we'll see you again next time here on The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.